0: Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. To another episode of Behind the Mic, a vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. I discuss their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Mic, Venters, is Megan from alt pop band Amour. Given how good their music is, I was really surprised to learn Meg is still a university student, but even at this early stage of their career, they are doing amazing stuff. As part of Amour, they've put out two tracks so far and the sky really is the limit for them. In this Behind the Mic episode, we discuss how Meg founded the band, their non-binary journey of gender discovery, ignoring the opinions of others, fitting in, stage fright and much more. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Mic with Amour. (laughs) Meg, welcome to Behind the Mic. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the pod and have a chat with me. I was put onto your music by a top lad and friend of the pod, Harry from Victor's. So shout out, Harry, if you're listening, mate. First off, I cannot begin to imagine what you're going through as a uni student right now, but how was your Christmas and New Year? Did you manage to enjoy it at all? And how are you kind of feeling at the moment?
1: Hello. Yeah, thank you, Harry, for getting us in touch. My well, Christmas was quite a short one. I only managed to get home quite late, so that wasn't fun and I had to spend the Christmas with my auntie who thankfully let me go and stay with her because my parents are working throughout Christmas, so I couldn't go and stay with them. But yeah, it was it was really lovely. Thank you.
0: Excellent. When we spoke off air, my subconscious bias was expecting to talk to well, especially because when I listened to your music, it was so accomplished and had such high production values. I was expecting to talk to this 26, 27 year old person who was like really accomplished and had so much stuff like in the pipeline already but then I spoke to you and you're a second year uni student do you get that a lot and do you see it as a compliment for like how high your ceiling could be potentially for music
1: yeah I see it as a huge compliment obviously I'm 20 nearly 21 and a lot of people are kind of you know shocked that me and my bandmate are so young especially since I've become friends with a couple of people that are more experienced in the industry like my friend Stephen from Blood Red Shoes I met him because he was my neighbour in my last flat so He's become kind of a little mentor to me. And him and his uh, friends that I met on his birthday were just a bit confused and shocked (laughs) that I'm so young. But that confuses me because, you know, I don't really think of myself the same way as they do. So, yeah, it's a huge compliment.
0: We've got that out of the way, Meg. Your journey is so interesting. I hope it will educate some of the listeners as well. So shall we just get on with the show? Let's start the pod Meg by talking about your journey with Amour which is pretty early on despite how good your stuff has been so far. Before we do that why don't you tell me and the listeners how your love affair with music began? Who were some of the artists and idols you listened to growing up? What impact did they have on you and your mental health? And then when did you start singing and playing instruments?
1: So growing up I listened to a lot of 80s, 90s, New Jack Swing, R&B like Guy, TLC, SWV, Janet Jackson, all stuff like that. And I only really got introduced to pop and rock stuff when I was in my early teens. So for me, my childhood was really, really R&B influenced. And I started playing guitar when I was six at school. I had guitar lessons and I didn't really start singing until I was about 12. I was just a very, very shy kid and didn't really think anyone would want to want to hear. So I kind of put that behind until I kind of had to do it in my music lessons at school.
0: Tell me how Amour came about now. First off, where did the name come from? I think it means to love in French, if I'm correct in saying. And how did you and your bandmate Mario get together?
1: So the name means love affair. So the difference between the two is l'amour with an L and an apostrophe at the start means love. And without it, it just means love affair. So I didn't actually know that for a long time. And after I found it out, I loved it even more. And the name actually came from my tattoo that I've got on my arm. I saw the word and I was like, that's a cool word. And then I was like, okay, I'll get a tattoo. And then when we were trying to come up with names, I just looked at my arm. I was like, actually, that's quite a cool, (laughs) quite a cool name. So we just went with that and it felt right. So we stuck with it. I met Mario on YouTube, actually. I was looking at production videos and I found his video making a 1975 type song. This is when I started trying to produce. So I was like, this is cool. This is what I listen to. I'm going to find this guy and be his friend. So I DM'd him on Instagram and we've spoke like every day since then. It was kind of like an accident how we started the band. I was trying to get a band together at uni and then he kind of was starting to produce for us and then I started to chip in more and then me and him just kind of formed this thing that was just like the best thing I've ever done in my life.
0: (laughs) And why do you and Mario work so well together and how would you describe your lineup? I think you told me off air that if you had to, it would be a sort of production duo similar to alt-pop artist Joan or maybe someone like Sophie Tucker. Is that a fair description?
1: Yeah, I'd say Joan, a pretty a pretty good comparison to our like, dynamic, except we don't play drums.
0: And for anyone who isn't aware of more Meg, how would you describe your sound, maybe the alt-pop scene it might fit into more widely, and then the music you make?
1: So essentially, we're a synth-pop band, heavy synths, deep bass lines, you know, driving drums. Quite similar to, I'd give a few recommendations in case people don't know. The 1975, Muna, The Aces, Fickle Friends, all a lot of artists that we are heavily inspired by. So that's, I think, the alt pop scene from my perspective.
0: And what impact does performing, playing instruments, singing or writing music have on your mental health, Meg? And which of those helps you more, do you think?
1: It has, I think, the most to do with helping my head and my mental health. I haven't ever performed outside of doing uni exams and school exams. So I can't really say that, but I'm really, really looking forward to being able to do that because I can see how much it helps a lot of people. When I'm feeling down, I'll just make something or play something. It clears my head and makes me feel better. So probably production.
0: As you mentioned, Meg, the alt pop scene or synth pop scene is in such a healthy place right now across the UK and the smorgasbord of US artists as well. You mentioned to me off air that MUNA were a really big source of inspiration for you, given your non-binary gender, which we'll just discuss a bit later on in the pod. Is that right?
1: Moona have been such a big inspiration to me from the start. When I found out that they were also LGBT, they just became such a special thing to me. At the time, I didn't really have any LGBT artists that I really listened to. At the time, I was exploring, figuring out my gender identity being non-binary. And I found out that Naomi from MUNA was non-binary as well. And seeing how much of an inspiration they were to me production-wise, it really just helped me to feel like I could do this as well. And seeing someone, being able to look up to someone like that has just generally really, really helped me in making music and you know feeling better about making it, I guess.
0: Whilst we're on this subject, you were also quite keen to talk about the lack of non-binary producers in the industry as well, Meg, and the work that still needs to be done for non-binary representation and female representation generally, I would say. I believe you had a stat from the US that illustrates this point. Tell me what that is and why you're so passionate about it.
1: Yeah, so I found a stat from statista.com on a Google search, and it says that in 2019, only 5% of the producers in the music industry were female and 95% were men. And obviously there's going to be a much smaller margin of that that are non-binary as well, but I couldn't actually find a stat For non binary producers. This obviously, in my opinion, doesn't really state the true amount of female producers. And I think it's good because a lot of people are now like searching for female non-binary producers to work with. So I think in the coming years that percentage will change quite a lot, which is amazing. And I'm hoping to be a part of that too.
0: We're going to go into depth about your non-binary journey later on in the pod, mate. But just quickly on this, given your non-binary identity and the fact that on appearance, some people may assume you identify as psi female. Have you experienced any stereotyping or assumptions made about you when you do tell people A, you're in a band and B, are non-binary and how does that affect your mental health if they do?
1: It's pretty much like 99.9% of the time people will just assume that I'm female and call me she her pronouns which I can't really argue with them because from first assumption when you look at me you're obviously gonna think I'm female so it doesn't bother me too much at the start but obviously I'll tell them that I identify as non-binary and use they them pronouns and if they can use them from now on and they do then it really really has a positive effect on my mental health because you know it's making me feel seen but a bunch of times there's been people that haven't really made the effort to say the right thing and that really, really, really takes a toll because I've gone through the process of telling them, which takes a lot for me to be able to do, and they just haven't listened. And it really, really hurts when they don't do that. There's been cases where I've had to just cut people out because it's just been so long and they just haven't got it right. And they're like, well, it's fine. And I'm just like, no, this is my life. You need to respect it. But yeah, it's those times that make me feel really down, but people are getting it right these days there's exceptions I guess for me anyway like family members they're fully aware that I'm non-binary and aware that I identify as non-binary but they've known me since I was born so it's really really hard for them to say the right thing so in a way just in my personal experience I don't really hear it when they call me she and as long as I know that they're aware and you know they tell people that I identify as non-binary and that I'm they them a lot of the time. They just can't get it right. But I know they're trying and they know they know I know that they care about me and love me. So it doesn't really bother me as much with them.
0: It's great to hear that you're cutting people out and doing stuff that's really positive for your self-care as well, Meg. Navigating the scene so far, have there been any bands you've connected with who have supported you, been really receptive to your non-binary identity? And is the scene an environment where you could be open about your mental health if you wanted to?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people like to categorise the type of music we make as soft boy, pop. Um, I'll stand by that. I think if the only way I can, well, if the main way I can get my feelings out is by writing, why would I not want to put that into the world? You know, why would I not want to let people know that it's okay to feel the same way? Victors have been really, really supportive. They were one of the first kind of bands that I'd connected with on the Internet. And they've been really, really lovely to me. And I don't really know anyone else, to be honest. No one knows me, knows who I am yet. Victors, they're my besties now.
0: Let's talk about your somewhat short discography now, Meg. Hopefully in a few more weeks and a few more months, it'll be a lot bigger. But your debut single is what we'll discuss first. It's called Just a Little. Can you tell me the story behind it? Did you have any nerves or anxieties before you put it out? And what was the reaction to it when you did?
1: So Just a Little has more of a dark side than, I think the majority of people realise. It's essentially you know written from the perspective of somebody that doesn't really want to be in the world anymore and saying that they've tried to get away from it and they're trying to convince themselves that things are going to get better this I think for us was a really anxiety inducing thing to be able to have to put out first I say have to it was our choice to put this out first but yeah it was really anxiety inducing to you know be so open in the first thing that we put in the world and personally for me the week leading up to releasing it i was a complete mess and most of my family hadn't even heard me sing before you know no one had heard me play it was like the first thing that anyone's ever heard of me so it was scary as hell having to put that into the world but i'm so glad i got it over and done with because i just get really excited now although i get i still get anxious with it now it's more of an excited anxious than the world is going to end kind of anxious But after we released it, the reaction was like, I can't even explain how good it was. Everybody was sharing it. Everybody was saying they loved it. We got added to a couple of Spotify playlists, which was insane. Like Peach, which is my favourite playlist anyway. It was crazy that we got added to that. So yeah, the, the reaction was crazy good. And we are extremely, extremely thankful for that. And everybody making us feel really welcomed into the music industry.
0: Your latest single, After Party, is the reason we're talking today. So thanks again, Harry, for posting it on his Instagram. It is an absolute banger. The slap bass in it is absolutely outrageous. Your vocals are so great and so smooth, and the production values are just absurdly good. That's probably the reason why we we had that chat at the start of the pod. Can you tell me about this single and what it means to you, Meg? As you also had a pretty big producer in the scene called Giga Mesh remix it.
1: Yeah, that Giga Mesh remix is insane. When I first heard it, I could not stop crying i don't know why it's just when the vocal chops come in it just makes me feel some type of way that makes me just sob i love it so much some of my family work in the industry as well and they managed to get the connection to gigamesh and he's my auntie's favorite producer and (laughs) we got in touch with him because of her she influenced us to do that and he was so down to do the the remix so that was really cool but the original song is my favorite thing that we've ever made and yeah I agree the slap bass is 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 my favorite part of the song it makes me feel really nostalgic and really when I listen to it I'm like yeah this is the type of music that I've always wanted to make I'm really 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 happy with how it came out wishing it got heard as much as just a little but we'll get there we'll get there
0: the single also got put on alt pop darling's hotel patchy spotify playlist now I know you're keeping your feet on the ground but do these things all feel quite surreal or are you getting used to it now?
1: Definitely not getting used to it. It was insane. I like did a little run around my bedroom. <laughs> um, My friend just tagged me in it and said, oh, your song's in this playlist. And I, I was like, oh, what playlist is this? And I clicked it and I was like, uh, what? <laughs> How? And then I, I tweeted. I didn't tag them or anything. I just tweeted what the heck, how did Hotel Apache find my song? And then they replied, like, because it's good uh, or because it's great or something like that. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I've listened to these guys for, like, a couple of years. These are, like, in my inspiration playlist when we go to make songs. Like, I don't understand how this is happening. Yeah, it's insane. I put it on my story and tagged them and then they replied to my story. And it it made me really, really want to just go back and make another song. We did that straight away. And, you know, it's these little things that are just really, 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 really driving driving us to to do more. It's so inspiring, these bands. They're the, all the reason why we wanted to do this kind of music in the first place is because they're doing it. And I'm like, wow, I want to do that too. Seeing that they're seeing us is insane.
0: It's at this point at the pod, Meg, where I usually talk about the stage and how you prepare for performances and gigs with my guests. But as you've said, you haven't actually done any gigs yet. And Actually, stage fright is something that you've had some difficulty with in the past. If you could just tell me how stage fright affects you and your mental health, I understand at university it's presented some really tough challenges for you.
1: Yeah, as I said earlier, the uni and school is the only place I've really performed to anybody. It was kind of horrible the first time I had to do it at uni. I wasn't ready, and it was our first lesson in in that module of the year or first year of songwriting, and they were like, "Okay, so." you have to perform this next week or it was like a very short amount of time they were like you have to do this song with these people you've never met before within seven days and you have to organize it outside of uni yourself and personally I'm not a very social person I was hoping uni would change that but I think it's (laughs) I'm the same I'm the same but I'm okay with that now I was so scared going into it obviously going on to songwriting I wanted to be a singer I wanted to make music myself at the time I couldn't produce myself so my goal really was to find people that would help me with a band and I could be you know the front person but I quickly found that I would kind of be pushed away from from that so Going into doing the first performance, I had a major freak out before and I was like, no, I'm not doing this. I did do it that day. I was playing the same four chords on guitar, which it was an easy thing for me to do. But being in that position, I just couldn't do it. So I wasn't even playing anything. And then after the performance, we get feedback in front of everybody from the tutors at the back of the room. There was like three of them. And they were all like, oh, Megan, we couldn't even hear your guitar. And obviously to me, I was like, but I was playing. Uh, um, So that was obviously a, for me a horrible experience for a first performance. And then knowing that I was going to have to do this like every week, I was just like, no way, I'm not doing this. Those are like the only experiences I've really had with performing. There was only one performance that I was kind of happy with at uni. And that was after I had swapped courses to production after the first year they don't expect the p- production students to perform at all. So at the time, I had a couple of people in my band that were also all on production and business. So they were really confused as to why there was no performance students on there. And we performed our cover of Pretty Great by Fickle Friends. And at the time, I was so excited because we had produced the cover ourselves and put that on online and people were really liking it. So I was really excited to perform that. And it was a really, really, really fun time. So. The difference between the times where I didn't have the choice to perform, whereas the time where I could perform whatever I wanted, it is a very big difference. And I still had the same thing going into it. i was still really anxious. So I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I was telling my band I'm not doing it. And they were like, no, you can do it. You know, it's it's those people that I do need to help me with stuff like this because in all honesty if I was doing it completely on my own I don't think I would I would ever be doing it you know the support from them is really really helpful going into that so having that small performance that was what I wanted to do that's made me really excited now to to then go on and do gigs and shows in the future.
0: As you've gotten older and you've progressed as an artist and a musician and a songwriter have you developed any mental tools or methods to help you manage and maybe even overcome stage fright, or are you still figuring that out?
1: Definitely still figuring that out. I don't think I've had enough experiences to really have a plan or have things that help me going into it yet.
0: Hopefully you get to a really good place about your stage anxiety, Meg, so I get the chance to come and see you perform because I know you'll be absolutely amazing. If there's any performers listening to this pod and may have gone through what you've gone through, what message or advice would you give them from your experience?
1: The first thing that comes to my head is, it genuinely, I know you're thinking it, but it is not the end of the world. If you get something wrong, it's fine. If it goes perfectly fine, again, it's fine. And if you have people around you that are telling you that you can do it, please listen to them because you can do it. You just need to do it. And then once you've done it, you've done it. And then you can just do it again and again and again.
0: I know you've only been doing a more for a short time, Meg, but so far, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think?
1: I think it's taught me that I'm capable of anything i guess everything that i didn't think i'd be able to do are things that i'm doing now so the main thing it's taught me is that i'm capable and that i can do things
0: and just finally what singles or projects coming up with amore can you share with me as behind the mic pod exclusive if you can
1: in a couple of weeks there will be a remix coming out that we have done for another artist which is fun i haven't told anyone that so that is your exclusive
0: and just as well, where can people find you on streaming platforms and social media?
1: It's at More on everything.
0: We've talked and more. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own journey, Meg, in a bit more detail. I ask all my special guests this question first. So why don't you tell me about your early life, childhood, teenage years? And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? Who's the Meg we meet here?
1: My childhood was good. I had good support from my family whilst growing up. I just happened to be a very, very anxious little little Megan. Yeah, so thinking about when I was little, I've definitely been anxious as long as I can remember. I've always been shy. I've always not really had any friends at school and stuff like that. So looking back, I don't think I've really changed that much. I've still got a close circle around me. I don't really have a lot of friends and I didn't then. So that's it.
0: We mentioned your non-binary gender earlier, Meg. So let's dive a bit more deeper into it now. For the listeners who don't know, what is non-binary? When did you come to this discovery and realisation? And so we can educate the listeners. Why is being non-binary separate from your sexuality?
1: I'll start with the last part that you said. Being non-binary is separate from my sexuality because gender and sexuality is different sexuality is whether i identify as straight gay lesbian bisexual and in that i identify as gay but um my gender identity is non-binary i'll say as well a lot of people get sex and gender confused your sex is what you were born so i was born female so that's my sex and my gender identity is non-binary so your sex is something that is your sex, and that's you can't change that. That's your, you know, your biological sex, but your gender identity is something that can change. And I think that's what a lot of people now that are, I think, in the older generations can't get their head around. Which I do try to educate as many people as I can because you have to look at gender as a spectrum and not just as a thing. There's so many parts of the spectrum that you can identify as. I find myself somewhere straight in the middle, I'd say. And when I explain to people about looking at it as a spectrum instead, on one end you've got female, the other end you've got male, and in between there's all of these different things, that different identities that people can identify as, it really helps people to understand that we're not trying to say that we weren't born like this. We're just trying to say, yeah, we were born like that, but that's not how we feel that we are inside, you know? And, yeah, I think my goal is to just keep telling people that and keep educating people that I just know they know that they're not going to change their minds. But then I'm like, hello, I'm going to tell you all this information that's going to make you understand.
0: Non binary people have probably existed for centuries, but for a lot of people, this is a fairly new phenomenon, in inverted commas. What are the things that people can say to you that would make you feel safe and comfortable when you tell them that you are non binary? And then what are the things people should avoid saying to not offend you or perhaps trigger you?
1: Honestly, The best thing you can do is just be like, oh, cool. I'll call you they, them from now on then. The thing, I guess, not to do is try and say stuff like, oh, but you were born female, aren't you female? Or, you know, stuff like that, you know, stuff that really makes it seem like a negative thing or me trying to be something that I'm not. Obviously, the main thing that would trigger me is if people do continue to ignore the fact that I'm non-binary and just keep calling me she, her and, you know, stuff like that. The best thing you can do is just say, it's cool. Or, oh great. Just act like it's just a new piece of information about me that you found out. Don't make it a big deal because then it makes me feel conscious about it.
0: As we said, your non binary gender is different to your sexuality, which is lesbian and gay. When did you discover you had feelings for girls and what was your coming out story like?
1: I kind of always knew that I didn't like boys. I tried when I was like eleven and twelve to like, you know, in year seven at school, to say I fancied this boy or whatever, but I didn't. I was just trying to, you know, make people think I was normal. Everybody is normal. But I was 12 when I fully realized, and I told my dad. I cried in the kitchen, and my dad said, Are you gay? And I said, Yeah. And then we just laughed, and then we went and told my mum. I didn't tell anybody else in my family until I was 16. And everybody had a positive reaction to it, which I understand that I'm extremely lucky because I know everyone doesn't have that. But I've had a very good support system around me since then. And yeah, I think I've had a very good experience with it.
0: Given you are non-binary and gay as well, did you have to almost double come out? And if so, what was that second coming out like? And did that present any challenges for your mental health?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I didn't really do it in the same way as like, I didn't say earlier, but I did do a big Facebook post when I was 16 to tell everybody that you know I'd been to school with. I did it as soon as I left school because I'd experienced people bullying other people for looking gay. I had a side cut when I was at school so people would always already call me gay. So I didn't want that to be a reality and for people to be able to take it further. So that's why I, I stayed in the closet till I was 16 with school. With figuring out my gender identity, I didn't really do the same thing. I kind of just put my pronouns in my bio and just told people like personally, rather than doing a big post about it, which is still fine if you want to do that. It's all good. I know a lot of people that have and it's been fine. But I kind of just changed my pronouns and people either realised or they didn't. And if they didn't, I would tell them, yeah, that's the way I did it, kind of subtle. But I don't think anyone was really shocked about that. Everyone kind of knew already as well.
0: Along this journey, have you faced any discrimination or stereotyping based on your lesbian sexuality or your non-binary gender? whether that's within the LGBT community, because as we know, it's not a monolith or outside of it.
1: Yeah. Right now I live in Brighton and I feel so accepted and I haven't faced any discrimination towards me at all, which is so freeing and makes me feel like I can breathe when I leave the house. But my hometown, I can't really go anywhere with, for example, with my girlfriend without people, you know, giving us dirty looks or shouting things at us it's usually grown men that say things you know there's obviously people that are always just going to be like that and I just think back where I'm from it's literally every time I leave the house and you know that's why I don't live there anymore it really 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 hurts when someone shouts something at you it's usually really really sexual stuff as well it's not just them shouting out like gay or something like that it's really hurtful words and I honestly don't understand how people can do it.
0: I want to move on to something which has impacted you really deeply on your journey, Meg, which is in the last few years, the passing of your grandmother, who sadly passed away in 2016, a few weeks before your 16th birthday. You told me, fair that in many ways, you're still processing this grief now. If you could just tell me about the build up to that event, when she passed, and then your grieving process afterwards.
1: So when she passed away, it was kind of a really quick experience she had caught a virus and within a couple of days she just deteriorated in hospital and then and then she passed away so for me it was kind of a really overwhelming experience because you know she was my best friend so you know within a couple of days being able to see her every day going to her house after school because it was two doors down from mine to then her being in hospital and then a couple of days later she was gone it was really 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 hard and after that I didn't cope with it very well for a long long time. I didn't go to school for the best part of the year properly. I kind of just stayed in my room on my own for a lot of the time. I did actually move in with my granddad for a couple of months after, which probably made my mental health a lot worse, but I did in a way feel better as well because I could be there for him. But you know, there's times where people get really sad and you can hear people crying and stuff like that and then you just feel worse. And I think it definitely helped us come closer together as well, me and my granddad, even though we were like still best friends anyway. But I think after that, like when I moved to uni and stuff, I'm still kind of the same. I still cry at least once a week. And when certain dates come around, like her birthday or Christmas, my whole family would go around her house for Christmas every year. So they'd be like, me and like all my 13 cousins, my aunties, uncles, everybody would all be staying at her house. So Christmas is really weird now. And yeah, I think especially in the last couple of weeks, I think I'm starting to get to a point where I can talk about it more without crying. Like I'm managing to do it now, which is strange because I can never do that. I think now I'm learning how to live with the fact that she's not here anymore. And I think the whole experience for me has been very, very, very deep.
0: Tell me a bit now, if you could, about what your grandmother was like, and then maybe what are your favourite memories of her that you carry with you now?
1: We used to go to Butlins every year when I was younger. So that was, you know, something that I would look forward to. And my granddad's a runner, so me my nan and granddad would go around different parts of the UK when he does marathons and half marathons and stuff it would usually be me and her like sitting eating chips at the beach waiting for him to finish running going shopping whilst he's doing that you know stuff like that is that's the main things that I miss and every weekend we'd go to the local shopping centre and get a cheese scone and a cup of coffee and it's those little things like now I can't really walk past that little cafe anymore and be like okay and they changed the whole interior of that as well and after they changed it I was like how dare they do that to this cafe that we would go to all the time she was there for everybody and she was someone that didn't take any bullshit from anybody she would just if you needed something you go to her she'll sort it out or whatever she, she was just really amazing
0: We often say on this pod Meg that grief is so complex and multi-layered that in some ways it's more stigmatised than mental health. Is that something you agree with from your experience and if so in what ways?
1: I think I can agree yeah I think where people go through grief in very different ways I think a couple of people expect people to be okay a lot sooner than they are. In my experience I've had people that have lost grandparents and they weren't really that close to them, whereas I literally saw mine every day and we were besties. So for me, it was really, really hard and for them, it wasn't. So it was hard for them to understand why I was so upset about it and like grieving so much. So in that way, I think there's less people that understand it in the same way as you to be able to tell you that they're there for you and help you through it in the same way as when people suffer with their mental health.
0: Like you said there, Meg, there is this, grieving ticking clock that people put on other people when it comes to the grieving process. Why is that the wrong approach? And how should people handle it when someone's grieving and have those important conversations? Because we can't brush it under the carpet, can we?
1: No, of course. I think the best thing that you can do is just be there for someone and let them cry to you if they want to cry and let them just grieve how they want to grieve. I think for me, a lot of the hard part of the grieving process has been me being on my own. A really, really good thing that's helped me is, you know, close friends and my girlfriend really helping me and just hugging me whilst I'm, like, really, really emotional. The best thing you can do is just be there.
0: I understand it was because of the impact that losing your grandmother had on you, Meg, that you sought out your GP and you were diagnosed with depression and also generalised anxiety disorder aged 17 which is GAD for sure. Now it's a bit more severe and different to just pure anxiety. How did you feel after you were diagnosed and how does anxiety and depression impact your mental health?
1: After I was diagnosed, I kind of felt a little bit of relief that someone was telling me I'm not going insane. And I've been dealing with this since I can remember. So it does take a massive, massive toll on my mental health because I'll go to do something and I'll feel so anxious to do it or going places doing things meeting people in terms of like music stuff lately I've experienced being way too anxious to go on like a zoom call with someone to do a session and stuff like that and it's really 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 annoying because it does stop me from going places sometimes and there's a lot of opportunities that are missed and then that makes me feel worse because my brain tells me why did you not do that you're stupid and I just have to tell myself that I'm not stupid and it's fine that I feel this way
0: It was at this point Meg that you saw professional counselling treatment which was a bit mixed to say the least. Everyone's experience with therapy is unique and some people can have good experience with therapy and some people can have bad experience with therapy. Can you tell me about your experiences here and why these two counsellors you had didn't work out for you?
1: When I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression I the first thing they said is you're not doing medication you're going straight to a therapist so I was like okay listen to them because it's you know, what they suggested the best thing for me to do. So I was like, okay. So I went to the first one and, you know, opened up to her about, you know, my grief, because that at the time was the main reason for me being depressed. And she was, I'd say probably over 60 and seems quite old fashioned when it comes to how to deal with anxiety and depression and grief. And in a sense, she just let me ramble on for a while and cry. And then at the end, she just said, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to get all your memories of your nan and put them in a box and put it under your bed and I was like no I'm not I'm not going to do that because I don't want to just shove everything shove all my feelings and reasons I'm sad in a box and just put them away why can't I put a photo up why can't I do the things I want to do there was just a really big barrier of like us being able to understand each other I think and it just didn't work out with her the second time I went it was kind of similar she didn't really tell me a certain thing I had to do but she didn't really give me any Information and any help to be able to cope with the way I'm feeling. So I went to her a couple of times, and it, again, we just couldn't understand each other. And I just felt that it just wasn't making anything better. And I, I understand that if I maybe had done a bit longer with this one, it might have been different, but you know, I wasn't gonna just keep feeling the same after going there so many times. But then a couple of years later, it was two years later, I met with my student support at uni, and it was like this mad thing where it was everything I needed to have in like a therapist before and it was just all in this one little room that I went in and I didn't expect it and she was really really understanding and amazing and I think the difference between the experience I had before and and this one is that she was a lot younger and she was doing the sessions as if we were just friends talking to each other rather than I'm a therapist I'm gonna tell you how to cope with your feelings and not really help but she really really helped me to understand like how I'm feeling and made me feel like I'm not going crazy and you know she gave me techniques and gave me things to do and places to look and groups to go to to be able to help me in my little head (laughs) and that was really good.
0: What you said there Meg is a really nice segue into university because it's a massive part of your journey as you've already said you're still there now so we won't reveal where you're studying but just tell me about the journey so far as it's been a bit of a roller coaster hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. Starting out, I was just very shy, didn't really speak to anybody. And I noticed a lot of people started getting groups together and started forming friendship groups. And very fast, you could see the popular groups forming and the people that would be the first people to get up and do the performances, which is cool. I wish I was like that because I, w- I would love to be able to just be like, yeah, I'm going to do that now. I felt really intimidated at first, which I think is pretty normal for a a little shy person like me. I changed my course after first year from songwriting to production. And throughout the first year of songwriting, I was just a very shy, anxious person that wouldn't really do much in terms of performing and showing people what I've done. I didn't really have any friends and it wasn't great because I don't feel like anyone really tried to talk to me either because I was just on my own in the back. And there was all these people that were, you know getting really friendly with each other, which I think if I was with a group of people and I saw someone alone in the back, I would go and speak to them and make them feel like part of it, you know. But no, can't change the past. I don't know where I'd be now if I had been friends with them, you know. After I changed my course, I went on to production and everybody in my class was male and Again, I felt really intimidated because I was the only person that wasn't male in there. I asked if I could be in a class with someone I knew that wasn't male and they said no. So I was like, that's great. I think they wanted to have more, I guess, diversity in each class. I don't think they should have done that, but it's fine. Or just listen to your students. Oh, well, anyway, I did feel a lot more at home on production and the tutors I found were a lot more, you know, the tutors that I had were students on the same course previously and I connected to them a lot more and where I was having more fun on the course because I felt like it was what I was meant to be doing I think it gave me more confidence to talk to some people in the class and it was weird because I would have expected the people on the songwriting course to want to have spoke to me more than these guys in this production course you know the guys that make like drum and bass and stuff like that but they actually did make the effort and You know, make me feel included, which I was really grateful for. And I've got a few friends that I made on there now. But yeah, it has been a roller coaster for sure.
0: A really sad and frustrating thing you told me as well, Meg, was that you said to me, no one bothered to speak to me until I put out my first single. Then all of a sudden I was getting people messaging me. One person asked me who does my mixing and my merch, and I never even spoken to them before. In the music industry, I guess, it's pretty common because there's always going to be emotional vampires trying to cling to success someone has or trying to ingratiate themselves with someone. How did that impact you initially? And as a positive, has it instilled some resilience and detachment tools you can use perhaps in the future if you did become a bit bigger and you can get rid of these fake people?
1: Yeah, it was kind of a shock at the start. Because obviously they had not spoke to me like once or even looked at me in the class, you know after the first song came out, I started getting loads of requests on Facebook, and I was like, "Oh here we go. I'm grateful that they were sharing it, but loads of people sharing it as if they were friends with me already and it, I just don't understand <laughs> I don't understand why why they do it, but I definitely am quite resilient to and you know cautious of who I become friends with now just because I want to make sure that they want to be my friend to be my friend, not just because of stuff. I feel like, you know, I don't want to be oblivious to people who want to take advantage and like so early on. So I do like to keep my circle quite small now. I've got kind of who I need around me. And I think my support bubbles is closed. (laughs) It's closed now (laughs) for the time being.
0: You're currently in your second year. And I can't even imagine the turmoil all of you students are going through. I mean, I was going through horrendous amount for my mental health when it came to my second year and I was allowed to do everything. So Can you just tell me a bit about how COVID has impacted this part of your life as well as your mental health?
1: COVID has not been fun. When COVID came around, I worked at the local hospital in the food canteen that actually closed and I didn't get furloughed or anything. So I was left with no money and no job for like four or five months. And I had to move back in with my parents during that time, but still pay my rent in Brighton. And it was the kind of time where I don't get much student loan because my parents on paper earn too much but they were also in a position where they couldn't help me pay my rent either so I was kind of just in this big rut where I wasn't getting paid from work I couldn't really get too much help from my parents they were helping me of course so much by letting me even just stay with them and you know feeding me and giving me somewhere to live whilst I couldn't pay my electric bill and my water bill at home so that was really really hard having to do that and I kind of just had to up and go with like only a couple of things. So I didn't have, you know, all my instruments and everything. I need usually to cope with my mental health. Luckily, I managed to get a job after that with my family at a record label. So that's been a massive help to me and has helped me get a couple of things in my career started up again. And... Obviously not being able to see a lot of the people that helped me a lot in my life and has really, really, really took a toll as well. I've got my housemates around me and they're all really lovely. So that's like my little home support system because I'm back in Brighton now after the first lockdown. Three of us are all at the same uni doing music. So I've got like minded people here. But yeah, it's not been fun at all. and Uni's been a nightmare online.
0: And just finally, Meg, without being patronising, obviously you're still very young and you have loads of time to grow and keep getting better at managing your mental health. But so far, what of all these experiences when it comes to your mental health, whether that's grief, your non-binary identity, taught you about yourself?
1: I think it's taught me that I'm a lot stronger than I think and that I've got what I need to help me get to where I want to be already. From now on, I need to keep figuring out how to get there
0: our final topic of conversation Meg and it's one I try and have with all my special guests is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly and at time of recording we are in very weird and unfortunate circumstances but how would you say your mental health is at the moment pal
1: at the moment I think it's going okay it's going okay about two weeks ago was the anniversary of my nan's death so I've been a bit weird lately but you know I'm feeling better and everything's good right now so yeah I'm good.
0: What things in life do you find that trigger your mental health? So this could be things people might say to you, could be a sound, could be a sensation, could be a social environment, what can you tell me here?
1: Something that at the moment is really really hurting my brain is lots of noise at once. I find that I just keep getting really panicky if I'm in the room where I live with five other people. Say we're all in the kitchen at the same time, it gets a lot for me. I have to kind of remove myself from the situation. That's the kind of thing that's really getting to me at the moment.
0: And also, Meg, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked, maybe, and which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: Playing music, making music, putting on my headphones, and just muting the world whilst I've got something I enjoy in my ears that is the one thing I do when I'm feeling anxious that's the thing that helps me the most honestly this might be a bit of a weird one but I keep cooking a lot and it's making me feel a lot better and like cooking for people for just no reason it clears my head and just anything creative I feel like you can count making food into being creative because you know you're creating something but doing anything that I have to do physically or listen to the thing I think that doesn't really help is being around people when my head's in a bit of a rut I find I get quite I guess short and frustrated quite easily so I don't really like to be around people when I'm feeling like that because I don't want them to think I'm you know being moody with them and stuff like that because I'm not I'm just I'm just getting a bit muddled in my head (laughs) that's all.
0: Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health who was it with what impact did it have on you? And how did you feel afterwards? Did it feel like a big moment and a, a weight had been lifted or something insignificant and normalised?
1: It did feel like a weight was lifted, I think. I think it was with my best friend at the time and she kind of encouraged me to tell my parents and some other people, which was short shortly before I got diagnosed with anxiety and depression. So yeah, I think it was kind of a big thing because I knew I'd felt like that for a very long time and knowing that someone told me that you know it was okay it felt like well you know this is normal for me it's not weird that i'm feeling like that and you know it's something that i can you know learn to cope with
0: and just finally meg what more do we have to do do you think to ensure people from all backgrounds all genders all sexualities feel comfortable and safe in opening up about the mental health issues or their mental health if they want to
1: i think just making people aware that you understand or that you're there for them if they need someone to talk to or to listen. I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, but the main thing is just honestly just being there for someone that's going through something or having a hard time. Even if you don't really understand it, it just helps for someone to listen. That's, I think, the best thing for me anyway.
0: Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to Meg from Amour for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with them. That banger we mentioned after Party will play us out, and I'll put all of the more streaming and social media links in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and support our Patreon at www.patreon.com/slash venthelpuk. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic and remember: it's always okay to vent.
1: It's all the baggage is just weighing me down. I say we're trying it too. But when you get it, the show will be done. Yeah, it's not a treasure, just cause a shine You said that if you ever knew you tried You found me. Is it wrong to say I didn't need to try to pretend that I'm sorry? This isn't working out. I hate that I'm okay. Maybe I'll go through a couple days into loading self-centered sabotage. I know the song is in my brain, and every